want to move us too quickly from that moment. Um, so let's just take a second to, to bask in the fact that we are loved. Your ministry to us is very important, and it prepares our hearts to enter the throne room. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, please. Is it still morning? Great. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Holly Bishu, and I am privileged to serve here as the Director of Youth and Family Ministry. Uh, basically, that means that I have one of the greatest jobs in the world, and I get to hang out with the 6th through 12th graders of this church. Phenomenal, phenomenal job, let me tell you. <laughs> I have a lot of fun, and I get paid to do it. It's very confusing to me, but I'm very glad. The Lord is very kind to me. <laughs> um, I've been serving in that role for just about two years. I can't believe it's already been almost two years, right, Kia? I know. <laughs> it's almost been two years. Uh, yeah, we're coming up on two years at the end of January, so... Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, but God has been so kind in all of it, and one of the coolest things that I've gotten invited into as I do this job is this part. I also have gotten to share the word and uh, love the word of God with you and in front of you. Uh, so my hope is that I get to do that again today. Uh, love the word of God with you. Um, just because I'm up here doesn't mean you're not in it as much as I am. I just happen to be the person God said, speak. Um, so... We're working on this together. We're going together before the throne room. We're going together to behold the glory of this God who has called us and saved us. Uh, yeah. Um, also, I happen to know that there are Mosaic students in the room, and I said I'm the director of youth and family ministry, and y'all left me hanging. So thanks. Um, I can't see each of you individually, but I know where you are because I chose your seats. So. <laughs> Okay, I'm the director of Youth and Family Ministry. That was everyone else. It's fine. I love them anyways. <laughs> this is teen ministry. <laughs> uh, I do love you all, as you know. Um, so today we will be uh, in uh, the scriptures in the book of Luke. I will be preaching a message called The Unmerited Favor of a Meal. So if you are able... Uh, would you please stand with me as you flip or click to Luke 19, 1 to 10? Um, and the words will also be on the screen. So please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, 1 to 10 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus re reached the spot, he looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Living God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have breathed out your word by the power of your spirit, and you continue to do the work to make, the, uh, to make your scriptures light up. I pray that they would light up today, that we would see you in these scriptures, and that we would leave here changed. Living God, uh, without you, we have nothing. Um, you are all we need, and you are enough for us. Uh, and so today, um, we trust that you are the provider and you will provide all that we need and you in this moment will provide us the nourishment for our souls that we need. And so living God, um, we ask you to do work only you can do. Spirit, do the heart work that only you can do. Make these words land in hearts, be planted and grow to fruition. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. All that is of you, let it land on hearts and grow and all that is not of you let it be blown away like chaff and forgotten I need you I need you to be able to do this um, and without you I, I am and have nothing um, so I ask living God uh, that you would empower me for this work that you have called me to in this moment yeah for your glory and our joy in the matchless powerful and sufficient name of Jesus Christ Amen. If you have heard me preach before, um, you will know that I grew up in church. Uh, by the grace of God, I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ at the age of four, and I have been discipled in the way of Jesus ever since. Um, when I was young, I thought that was a really boring story. <laughs> at this age, I see the grace of God on my life that he claimed me so young, and by his grace, I have not strayed. Um, and he has held me so long. So that's part of my story. <laughs> um, and I have faith that by his grace I will endure to the end. One of the things that comes with that, aside from the incredible grace that it is that I have been following the Lord for 27 years, is that I know a whole lot of kids' songs about the Bible. So many, and they all stuck. Like, there's something about these songs that they turn into earworms, and somehow at 31, I'm still singing songs I started singing at three. So, <laughs> so um, it's turned into a bit of a game with me and the kids' director, Josia, who happens to be one of my best friends. Uh, we'll be hanging out, and she'll be like, oh, my kids heard this song, or uh, have you heard this song before? And then she'll play it, and I start singing along and doing actions as my yes. So <laughs> um, I say all of this to say, the story that I just read to you and the scripture that we'll be in, I knew it as a song very early. Um, if you know it, you can sing with me. If you don't, I'm really glad for you. <laughs> and I'm about to ruin that. So it goes something like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Why do we do him like that? He <laughs> climbed up to a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked into the tree, and he said, For I'm going to your house today. 
for I'm going to your house today. Clearly, y'all grew up the same way I did. <laughs> it honestly worked in the first service, wasn't sure it was going to land again. I'm really excited that it did. Uh, the reason I sing that with you and that I mention it is because I would hear that part, Zacchaeus, you come down. And I always heard it as like this command from the Lord that was really intense and like, you better get down here. Um, because I was a kid, and when we go, you come down, I'm like, okay, we better do it. <laughs> I, was, I was a very obedient kid, I feel like. <laughs> um, my mom might say differently. Um, but I always heard that as like this imperative, this command. Uh, however, as I've gotten older, as I've meditated on this story more, as um, I've added more life experience to this, um, and as God has expanded my view, uh, my understanding has become much different about what Jesus was doing in that moment with Zacchaeus and in this story. And so, um, I am excited to share with you what I believe God has to say here for us today um, and to show you the ways that I have discovered that what Jesus was doing in inviting Zacchaeus down from that tree was actually really countercultural. It was really subversive. And this has now become one of my favorite stories in all the Bible and has really formed um, how I do this Christian life, and my hope is that it would do something similar for you. So let's dive in. So in this story, in Luke chapter 19, uh, we encounter this man named Zacchaeus, and he was a man with a terrible job. He was a tax collector. Now, we hear the word taxes, and I think automatically we can get there. No, it's like hearing the IRS, right? However, it's even worse in the ancient Near East. You see, Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, he was part of um, this community of oppressed people under Roman rule. Uh, however, he was seen as a traitor by his own people because to be a tax collector meant that he had chosen to ally himself with the Roman powers that be. He was working for the Romans, and not only was he working for the Romans, but he was a rich man. It says he was wealthy, and it's like, okay, so you were a tax collector who was rich, but... What that means is that he had actually defrauded people out of their money, and not only did he defraud people, he defrauded his own people. So he was making money off the backs of people who looked just like him. And he was becoming richer and richer while they were getting poorer and poorer. He chose to side with these oppressors. Um, he was collaborating with an oppressive Roman Empire to defraud the oppressed. And he gained some measure of power but only over his own people. So in doing so, the rabbis of the time declared tax collectors ritually unclean. When you are considered ritually unclean, you are not able to engage with the spiritual community until you have been um, cleansed, until you've gone to the mikveh and cleansed yourself in front of the, um, in front of the, the priests and, uh, the, in the holy water. This man, Zacchaeus, was declared unclean, but he now has a problem because he wants to see this Jesus that is passing through. So what does he do? Because as you can imagine, he certainly does not have the best rapport with the crowd. And to enter that crowd would be a problem for the crowd who would be seeing him as unclean and be like, we can't touch him. We can't touch him or else we'll be unclean too. Then we'll have to go do the ritual cleansing. Or, for him, because he's like, I don't know what they're going to do to me. There's a whole lot of them and very little of me. So 
what do you do? And that leads into our practical problem. My man Zacchaeus was short. And I feel a type of way about how they did him in the scriptures on that one, because I also am short. Um, I come up to a clean 5'4", um, and I just gained that inch in the last year, which is amazing. I thought I was 5'3 for the longest, um, and I'm very excited. <laughs> and so being the height that I am, <laughs> I can speak intimately to the experience of being short. In fact, I have a friend here who once we went to a concert, and a man <laughs> stood directly in front of me. <laughs> a man st stood directly in front of me who was at least 6'1", and I yelled at him, are you kidding me? Very loudly, it just sort of came out, he moved. It worked out well for me. But I've had this problem at concerts, at movies, in sermons when I'm sitting because people's torsos are long and I'm just trying to see. I get it. Being vertically challenged is an issue when you are trying to see in a crowd. He can't shove his way to the front because he can't touch anybody. He can't see if he lingers in the back and nobody wants to be near him anyway, so he's like, I, I'm stuck. But he's so compelled to see this man, Jesus, who is coming through town, so he figures out a solve. He runs and climbs in a tree. Now that might seem like, okay, I mean, if you're looking around and there's no step stool, like I guess the, I guess the best plan is to climb into a tree, but in the ancient Near East, what he was doing was shame upon shame. Men did not run in that day. That was undignified. You certainly didn't climb into a tree. Also undignified. And this man was already a man with great shame because he's doing a job that made him rich, but uh, made him very poor um, in community. He clearly doesn't want to be seen. If he's willing to do all of this and step into these shameful things, he's very clearly hiding. And this is the power of shame. Shame hides. Shame sinks deep and convinces us that the only way forward is to be covered in darkness. It doesn't allow ourselves to be seen, and we don't let ourselves be seen. In fact, sometimes we can barely look at ourselves under the weight of shame. And we remain trapped in the lie that shame must be lived with and it must be hidden, so we must remain hidden with it. That trap becomes all that we can see and we get sapped from this hope for an outcome that could ever include being freed from that shame. Freedom becomes a myth, and all solutions that you could ever come up with include this weight of shame that becomes almost inextricable from our sense of self. And I know, because I'm in this room, <laughs> that there are people in this room who have experienced that, who've experienced the power of this shame and hidden pieces of ourselves, I say our, because this I've done this too, our, we have hidden ourselves away. Or maybe you, if that's not something that you can draw to immediately, you can think of somebody who has hidden in plain sight, hoping not to be seen, believing that if they were seen for everything that they are, no one would stick around to love them. Sanctuary, friends, saints of God, this is a lie from the enemy. Our enemy loves to use shame to convince us that we are too far from redemption. He loves to use shame to deceive us into believing that we are above those who feel shame as well. 
pushing the shamed further into the shadows rather than drawing them close in community. And unfortunately, this is a view that the church has become all too popular for. I can't ever enter into those doors because those people in there will make me feel even more ashamed than I already am. Yet the scriptures, these scriptures that we believe, that we say hold the words of life, these scriptures say that shame no longer has the power that it once did because Colossians 2 says that on the cross, Christ disarmed the enemy by putting the power of shame to open shame himself by his death and resurrection. And so, how horrific it is, how antithetical to this grace that we have received as the people of God that our actions as those who claim to love Christ have instead subverted the cross, heaping shame back onto those who Christ died and rose again to free. For those who are racked with shame in the room, may I tell you this, an encounter with Jesus will save your life. It will save your life and it will change your life because he has already dealt with your shame and the simple invitation to you is to come in and be freed. That's it. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to do anything but show up just as you are. He sees you for all of who you are and says, I love you. He sees every bit and he says, I love you. He sees all the darkness, all the, all the things that you feel like you've done, all the ways you felt like you couldn't draw close to him. He sees all of it. You are laid bare in front of him, and he says, I love you. That is the posture of Christ towards you because he already did everything necessary to save you from that. And for those of us in the room who find in yourselves, in ourselves, a tendency to hold shame over people, and I've been one of these people before, I think we all have, if we're honest. This is not your call, our call in Jesus Christ. In Christ, shame has been shamed already and defeated, and the power of the cross is that freedom from those shackles of shame and darkness has come. So saints, do not find yourselves placing those shackles on people once more and instead subvert the cross that your Jesus died on. As Jesus is leaving Jericho, Zacchaeus manages to find a prime spot for a Jesus sighting. A tree. However, what happens next shocked not only Zacchaeus, but everyone around them. Jesus is walking through. He's decided to go through Jericho. He's not making a stop. He's not stopping in the journey, and then he does stop in front of a tree. This tree was outside of the city limits. It was pretty far out, had big leaves, as sycamore fig trees did, and he stops. And he stops in front of that tree where Zacchaeus had tried so desperately to hide. And he looks into the tree and he calls his name. I don't want you to miss this, saints. The savior of the world stopped and cut through the shame that shrouded Zacchaeus and invited himself into Zacchaeus' presence. 
You see, so often shame convinces us that we can't be loved because we can't fully be seen. We're hiding parts of ourselves in this shame, and if you can't be fully seen, how can you be fully loved? But Jesus cuts through this for Zacchaeus and says, I am coming to you. He takes the first step, and he says, I'm coming to you. Come down from there. Zacchaeus jumps into action at that point, and he welcomes Jesus into his home for a meal. You see, family of God, you see, love disrupts. It disrupts faulty views of ourselves and it reimagines who we could be. Love invites us higher to walk with Jesus and become more like him. Jesus, in reaching out to Zacchaeus, gave him a vision of who he could be. The love of Jesus disrupted the shame of Zacchaeus and called him out of hiding. And Jesus called Zacchaeus so far out of hiding that he went from being in a tree on the outskirts of town so he couldn't be seen to opening his home wide for this man who saw him. Who saw him in his shame and said, come down from there, I want to be with you. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon about loving your enemies said this. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrender to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. But we shall not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Yeah, he, he was a preacher. Y'all, I just really want to say this. Quick history lesson. Um, we see Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a revolutionary, as uh, a civil rights icon, as all of these things, and sometimes we forget that he's a pastor first. He's a seminary-trained pastor first. It was his love for Jesus and his belief in Jesus and what Jesus called him to that, did, that compelled him to act. So when we think on this man and we hear these things, remember this is someone who loved Jesus a lot. Anyways, just had to add that. <laughs> when Jesus drew near to Zacchaeus, he won two victories. Those who Zacchaeus had oppressed would be free from his oppressive ways, and Zacchaeus himself was one in the process. The love of Jesus disrupted oppression that Zacchaeus was enacting and the oppression of sin and shame in Zacchaeus' own life. Saints, we must let love be our ethic and watch as this love disrupts the evil in this world. 
As we move away from shame, we must, we must replace it with love and let that love guide us to a holy disruption of all that would stand in the way of people coming to know the love of Christ, whether that's injustice they receive or injustice they enact. It's really easy to forget under the weight of oppression that our oppressors need to be freed as well. And grace, grace transforms. When Jesus goes over to Zacchaeus' house, he's doing something that makes the people around grumble, saying, he's gone to hang out with a sinner. Because Zacchaeus' actions had made him ceremonially unclean, the people expected that Jesus entering his home and dining with him would also make Jesus unclean. Because when you come in contact with the unclean, you become unclean. But what they didn't know, what they did not have eyes to see and ears to hear, is that when Jesus enters, he transforms the unclean and he makes it clean. When Jesus enters, the unclean becomes clean in his presence. And so, Jesus lets down his guard and he goes to eat with Zacchaeus. At this moment, you probably have a picture of what this meal looks like. And in our context, when you invite somebody over for a meal, chances are you're inviting them to sit at a table with you in a chair. It might look like place settings. It might not. It might look like a fork and knife. It might not. In my culture as an Ethiopian, if we're eating injera, we're using our hands. <laughs> but chances are you're sitting upright at a table. However, in the ancient Near East, that's not the case. To come in and eat is to recline. It's to get down on the floor, lay out, and lean back. You lean back on your left arm, you eat with your right. This is an incredibly vulnerable position. It's an incredibly vulnerable posture. Because imagine something goes down, you gotta get up really fast, and you gotta hands up. It's just, it's a lot. And Jesus takes this vulnerable position with Zacchaeus. And in doing so, Jesus' grace towards Zacchaeus transforms him. This unmerited favor from this perfect man who has chosen to see him in all of his shame and come in and be close. This grace transforms him and suddenly Zacchaeus comes forward with an outburst of repentance. The response to the grace that he has been shown is this outburst of repentance and this repentance is not just left alone hanging. That's not where our story ends. What we actually hear is Jesus meeting Zacchaeus' repentance with a declaration. This declaration is that sal salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house and he has been restored to the community as a son of Abraham because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And this is an example of restorative justice at work. According to the University of Wisconsin Law School, restorative justice practices work to address the dehumanization frequently experienced by people in the traditional criminal justice system. Instead of viewing a criminal act as simply a violation of a rule or statute, restorative justice sees this action as a violation of people and relationships. Restorative justice seeks to examine the harmful impact of a crime and then determines what can be done to repair that harm while holding the person who caused it accountable for his or her actions. Accountability for the offender means accepting responsibility and acting to repair the harm done. 
outcomes seek to both repair the harm and address the reasons for the offense while reducing the likelihood of reoffense. Rather than focusing on the punishment meted out, restorative justice measures result Oh, sorry, restorative justice measures results by how successfully the harm is repaired. This does not mean, and hear me on this, this does not mean that victims are not believed or heard. It is the opposite. Victims are centered in this work, but the purpose is restoration into community, exactly what we were created for as image bearers. This thing that God has placed in all of us that we need, this community, the beloved community, as, as Dr. King called it. We were created for this, and that doesn't stop when you do something wrong, when you are a perpetrator of injustice. That doesn't so stop. The temptation, when injustice occurs, is to cry out for justice that looks a lot more like retribution than restoration. However, however, saints of God, people who have been blood-bought, Christ has not moved towards us in that way. Our sins have broken the relationship between us and God. The greatest victim of our sin, this harm that's been done, this rupture in what is meant to be that was done by our sin, the greatest victim of that was Jesus himself, and he moved toward us, and his response was, it is finished, you are free. And this freedom that Zacchaeus was given from his sin. It moved Zacchaeus not only to repent of his wrongs, but also to offer reparations. That the right response as a perpetrator of injustice wasn't enough to say, I'm sorry. It wasn't enough to say, I'll do better in the future. It's, I will repay what I have done wrong. I've made restitution. We have many examples of the ways that we are called in our confession and repentance to prove our repentance by repaying what we owe. And Zacchaeus does that. When grace transforms you, you can't help but live into who you imagined as love disrupts your life. Zacchaeus says he'll give 50% of his ill-gotten gains to the poor, 50% of his wealth to the poor, and then on top of that, those that he defrauded, those that he took a skim off the top when he collected their taxes, he'll give them back four times what he stole. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And one commentary I read as I was preparing said that that was more than Zacchaeus even owned. He actually said, I'll give it all away. And that in that context, that exaggeration, this I'll give, I'll just give it all away, I'll give more than I have, was to prove a point. It was to prove that he was serious about what he was saying. And Jesus heard him and believed him. And we know this because Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. He has been restored into the community. Zacchaeus is now clean. This was grace, the unmerited favor of a meal. My friend, theologian and storyteller John Onwuchekwa said something that I have been thinking on for the last four and a half years since I heard it. In 2019, I was at a conference and he, it was my first time hearing him preach and 
um, at the end of his sermon, he said this profound quote that I am excited to share with you today, and I hope it sinks in for you as it did for me. There are two ways to destroy an enemy, eradicating them or turning them into a friend. Christ's justice enacted with us saints is grace because in Christ, we have been turned from enemy to friend. No longer an enemy, no longer against Christ, he has called us his friends and his co-heirs. We've been invited into the family of God when everything that we have done in the body is deserving of exactly the opposite. That's the unmerited favor of Jesus towards us. So how, after our actions have ruptured our community with God, the community that we were created for, how, after realizing that Christ has chosen to draw near to us, forgiving us and not treating us as our sins deserve, how can we do any less for those we might be made uncomfortable by? To those we might consider an enemy. And now enemy doesn't necessarily mean someone you're actually trying to kill or trying to fight. But I'm pretty sure that if I asked you to, to spend a couple minutes thinking about it, somebody would come to mind. Somebody would come to mind who their actions have felt oppressive maybe, have felt like you are very much in the wrong for acting like this. What if today the call is to respond in love and to continue to respond in love? Now what I'm not saying what I'm not saying is that we just roll over and take whatever we're treated as. I think that sometimes it can sound like we say that from the pulpit. You know, you just love. Love is firm. Love is strong. Love can call people in and say these actions are not okay, but the posture from which we do that is inviting someone in rather than casting them out as their sins might deserve. And we choose not to do that because we know that same grace. Family drawing near and inviting someone to a table is a beautiful way to destroy an enemy and make them your friend. And we do all of this in hope because a day is coming where we will all sit down at a beautiful meal. There's a day where our Savior will return to earth and he will set before us the banquet feast of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb, and we will sit there beholding this Savior we have been waiting for. We will eat and we will drink together and we will see the restoration that we have been working towards our whole lives. That in our love that was hard when we were suffering, when we chose to step into the suffering and say, I will outlove you. You will hurt me and I will love you. You will cause me pain and I will love you. You will say mean things to me and I will love you. And one day, hopefully, you will no longer be my enemy, but you will be my friend and brother or sister in Christ. And you will know freedom from the oppression that you seem to be enacting upon me. And we have a double victory. I am free and you are free. And next to us will be all those people with whom our relationships have been restored in Christ. And we will worship and sing the song that will never end of the Lamb who is worthy to be praised. Saints of God, as we go into the world, may we draw near to people as Jesus did, even that person who came to mind when I was talking about that person. <laughs> 
May we cast, a shame, uh, cast aside the shame that hides us. May we allow love to disrupt patterns of darkness, evil, and pain. And may we watch as the grace we've received goes forth into the world and transforms us and those around us into the beloved community as the power of the enemy is defeated. Let me pray for us. Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the work that only you can do. And thank you for the ways that you will empower us to do what you have called us to do. The ways that you will empower us to love in the face of shame, in the face of hatred, in the face of pain. Um, and believe that all people have been called into restoration by relationship with you. And thus restoration to relationship with us. You are the one who heals ruptures. You are the one who sees both the oppressed and the oppressor and meets both in their need. I pray you would make us more like you as we go forward, as we leave this place. May we trust you for those places that we feel like we can't show up in our shame. May we remember that just as Adam and Eve tried to hide from their shame and you called them down, just as Zacchaeus was called down by Jesus, um, that you have chosen to cover our shame with yourself. You have done everything necessary, God, to cover our shame, call us into love, disrupt our lives, and transform us with the grace that you have given us, and you call us to do the same for others. May we have eyes like you, Jesus, that pierce through shame, disrupt with love, and transform with grace. We trust you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Family, there are going to be uh, prayer servants, I don't actually know the term for that, I'm realizing, people who are serving by praying here at the front. Um, if you have something you want to bring to them, th this is a great time. Um, if you want to step out of some shame, if you want to voice something that maybe you just need to voice to somebody, come and speak with them. Uh, stand with me as I uh, read us out with a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace, sanctuary. You are loved, and you are loved to love others. Amen and amen.